Welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Helena Knappik, and this podcast aims to give mentoring and career advice to women in the Australian public service and beyond. Please excuse any Sunday sounds in the background. I'm just recording in my new kitchen. Uh, It's been a bit of a while between posting because there's been some significant changes. Yes, including moving house. Uh, doing some travel to New Zealand and going on secondment. So I really apologise for the delay of this superb interview with my friend and colleague Michelle Bryan. Michelle is a visible and vocal supporter of the Empowered Women's Network at the ESC and my own personal cheerleader. Michelle has a diverse career spanning the east coast of Australia in journalism and communication. And I'm so proud and grateful and excited to be able to share Michelle's story with you. So, Michelle Bryan, thank you so much for being with me here today. Thank you, Helena. I'm I'm quite chuffed to have been invited. <laughs> I'm so excited. This is going to be great. <laughs> I'm just really happy that you're able to be here. So, oh, thank you thank so you. much. Thank you, thank you. Um, so, this is the Empowered Podcast, and we're going to be talking a little bit about your career, uh, about women in the workplace, and what you've learned throughout your career. So, let's get started. Um, can you give us a bit of a background as to your career and how you got into the public service? Sure. So I have, um, I feel like I've had a career in in three parts so far. Um, I started off in uh, as a journalist, uh, starting out in a little country newspaper in my hometown of Lithgow near the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. Oh, wow. And did and you study around that area as well? Or? I did. I did. I went to Bathurst to Charles Sturt University, or as anyone from back in that era knows it as, I'm one of the Mitchell Mafia. So there's lots of people who trained in journalism who went to Mitchell, as it is fondly known, and uh, and have reached the, the, the upper echelons of journalism, which I didn't do, but I certainly had a, um, a good crack at radio, mostly in, in Sydney and on the Central Coast. And of New South Wales, and then the next ten years, uh, because journalism is in a lot of ways, or it certainly was back then, and I'm talking the '90s, was was incompatible with um, having a life. Basically, um, particularly a, a lot of that time, I was doing overnights and breakfast radio. And what time do you need to start for those sorts of recordings? Um, you start at 5am most of the time <laughs> oh, I can't even and, <laughs> and I didn't live in Sydney. I actually lived on the Central Coast. So I had an hour and a half commute before. So I used to catch the 3.05 from Gosford <gasps> along with the other bleary-eyed early, early morning commuters um, to, and I did that for six or seven years. Uh, and then I moved to, then I got married in my late 20s, moved to Newcastle and uh, did, did another couple of years then. And then there was an incident where I got, um, I guess, a, a bit disgruntled with, with the media and um, there, was a, there was a Gretly Mine disaster and one of the jobs I had to do was to ring up the widow of a woman who the day before had lost her husband in the Gretly Mine disaster. And it was one of those awful situations to be in and as as respectful as I tried to be I just found it really difficult and it kind of was a nail in the coffin for me um so I moved on and I went to work in local government as a as a media advisor back then and spent the next 12 years 
in local government and actually really loved it. And I've developed a, a strong and abiding regard for local government. Um, it's not perfect like any level of government, but I certainly had a lot of regard for local government. And over that time, I had a family and I learned a lot. Um, I in particular learned a lot about organisational development and leadership. I was a manager at 28, um, which was <laughs> rather rude, frankly, to make someone that young a manager who had no experience, but it gave me lots of room to learn and grow. How did you find the transition between being a journalist and moving into local government? Because I, in my mind, I would think that that'd be quite a different role. Um, so how does how did it change in terms of like not only the hours, obviously I'm sure they were much better in local government, but um, in terms of the work that you did and the de- and the decision making process behind making that change. Behind making that change, well, I was so young and I was totally convinced that I knew everything. I'd spent a few years in the big smoke, working in the big Sydney radio market, and journalists, um, because of the job that they do, can tend to think they know how the world works because that's their job is to interpret and explain the world every day. But um, it's not the real world. And so I I was young enough to think I knew everything, but then I learned very quickly I knew nothing. (laughs) Um, but I was also incredibly lucky to have a, um, a general manager who was just extraordinary and who supported me in developing and learning. I also had a manager who was the same and um, my manager was a guy but my general manager was a female and, um, and she, she is still my mentor to this day. Um, wow. So it's a great know, connection to have. It's a, a yeah. great Great connection and a great opportunity. I learned so much um, from her. Uh, but the the role was different, but it was the same and my job has always been the same and that is to take complex information and translate it into something that the ordinary person can understand and, and translating that, that's my job. Always yeah. has been. Yeah. So it was a lot of like transferable skills, so things that you could take from one industry and move it in and apply it through local government. Absolutely. So and it wasn't still... necessarily like retraining. It wasn't like something that was completely new for you. It was something that, okay, being a media advisor is sort of taking the same information, but the source is local government, translating that in a way that the audience will be able to understand. Exactly. And it was about organisational transformation as well. And that that was that was the shift. Yeah. It was moving away, moving from where I was simply a translator and a conduit for information and actually becoming an agent of change within the organisation because when I arrived, <laughs> I, could, I could still remember walking into that job interview and the job interview was with the general manager of the council, of the interview, and with a councillor who only that day or the day before I had interviewed because I was still in my radio role right. when I went for the interview and, and was interviewing this councillor about councillor about a particular issue and then he's on the other side of the table from me. And I literally walked into the room and said, you guys are terrible at communication. Here's what you need to do. And I put a full-blown communication strategy for the organisation on the table in front of them. And I still remember the, the general manager and the um, and the councillor, they pretty much looked at each other 
and there was this look that passed between them and I knew I had the job. You was like, I got this, it's in <laughs> the bag. It, I got it. And I've had that I've had that a few times in my life where I have just I've seen in the eyes um, the response to what I'm putting on the table. And when I'm at my most confident but not cocky, um, is is when when that has happened for me. I think I can relate to that a little bit sometimes because my my experience is I've you know I've had about six eight years experience within the public service, but I know that even throughout university, I knew that like if you're in, in an exam or in a test or something, you know when you have the answer right, like you know what the answer is, you know what people need, and you feel confident in that, and there's you know and you should celebrate that you feel confident in that. I think it's quite interesting how you actually came to a job interview. You had a whole communication strategy organized. Like I mean, I'm not sure like if I've ever gone to an interview and had that sort of a Mm, that sort of forethought let's say I mean I've the types of interviews I've been for in the public service a lot of them are key selection criteria you prepare for those you you try and make your um your previous work history tailored towards that however I don't know if I've necessarily like there's there's been forward questions in the interview but have I put together a proposal for a particular project that this team might be useful for I don't think I've done that so I think that's a really interesting approach is that the way that is that quite common in that um, area or is that just something that you know you wanted this job you thought they could do these things better they might as well see all your skills and there you go I think it's a bit of both it's something that I did back then because I really wanted the job right um, you know I was in a position of um, really wanting to make the transition and you know I needed to show them that I was the person for them and and for me it's always been about you know show them what you got don't just talk a good game um and it's an approach that I take today when I interview for positions in my team I always um present what I call a strategic challenge and it's you know I put forward a a report or a project or an, or an issue and say, you know, depending on what the role is in my team, you know, show me what you've got and then talk to it. And what I've found is the people who nail that and then can confidently present on, on what they bring to the table almost always work out better down the track. In When I haven't done that, um, particularly when I've you know, had a temporary role or an interim role and I've gone, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to get people to go to the trouble of doing this because I'm, I'm expecting a good 24 hours worth of effort. I'm, I'm expecting them to have put their mind to it over the weekend, have a good think about it and present something, you know, that, that, that ticks the boxes of what somebody should know in, in the sorts of roles that are in my team. Um, when I haven't done it and I've got people who've, talked a good game but I haven't actually got them to demonstrate it I've had a few things that haven't worked out mm. um, but I also feel that there are some people who they're not necessarily as articulate or confident but if they know their stuff and they've had an opportunity to grapple with your content and um, they've had a chance to think it through it gives those people confidence and I've had some of the best people who aren't necessarily on face value the most confident, forceful, articulate, but if if they've got the right skill set, then I want them in my team. Yeah, I don't I don't want a whole bunch of tap dancing, you know, I don't want four or five Michelles. There's only one Michelle. <laughs> there is only one Michelle. <laughs> I, 
I, I apparently do have a nickname, um, the Energizer Bunny. Yep. Um, I'll second that. I'm, I'm, I know I can tend to be a bit full on and intense, and that's why I, I absolutely need people in the team who are not like that. Um, one of, I think, the biggest lessons I've learned over the years is don't replicate yourself. You do not want, and, and the challenges that I've had as a manager, particularly as a female manager, have, have been when I haven't paid close enough attention to the need to complement my skill set. We don't need another external in the team, or if we do, they need to be because we need extra resources doing that. What I do need is I need a digital specialist and I need a publication specialist. And so that's how I um, approach it, that I'm not the sum total of what the team needs. Um, I need people with different skill sets, particularly these days that comms is a lot more diverse than it was 15 years ago or 20 years ago when I started on this side of the event. Um, so it is about putting together that complementary skill set. And I think there's also a lot of um, there's a lot of research and a lot of understanding towards the benefits of diversity within any team. I mean, even if we talk about having diversity of genders or diversity of ethnicities or diversities of, um, you know, university education or, you know, geographical, wherever you grew up. Like, I mean, that sort of diversity, uh, it does complement a team. You're able to solve problems quicker. You're able to get to the solution faster, all of those things. So I think that's sort of what, what you're looking for as well, which is great. I would like to get back to your career My history because we've jumped into comms and people might be like, what is happening? Yeah. She was just in local government. When is she in comms? So you're in local government for 12 yeah. years and yeah. then what happened? So it was comms in local government. Yes. So it was the comms media manager advising, in local yeah. government. Media, media and then developed from a, from a simple media liaison role to a full service corporate comms um, function. And then um, that my time with local government came to an end through one of those I have to say, awful big restructures that was quite devastating at the time but was the best thing that ever happened to me. And, and there's another lesson is sometimes the things that, you know, hurt the most, um, once you get over them, you realise that it was, you know, a, a good thing. Uh, I then moved, um, at this time I was back at uni doing my Masters of Organisational Communication because um, for a variety of reasons, but... Uh, I was also teaching at uni and um, sort of toying with the idea of becoming an academic but not quite convinced that I really wanted to go there. So then I left local government and I was doing the uni teaching and I went, um, I became a consultant for a while. And I was consulting mainly with large organisations. That's what I did my master's in was reputation management in large organisations and mostly um, tertiary institutions and councils um, doing work for them on reputation management, taking it, you know, from base level communications and engagement to reputation management. I did that for a couple of years, including working in, in water, doing um, a big infrastructure pipeline project on the Central Coast. And, and then my son um, got into the Australian Ballet School. That's so amazing. That's incredible. <laughs> and, and our lives changed. So we decided to leave. We were in Newcastle at that time and we decided, the family, we decided to pack things up and move to Melbourne to give him his big shot. And uh, pleased to say that after five years he graduated and he's in his first year in the company now, so we're incredibly proud of him. 
Um, and I landed in, you know, the comms capital of Australia. You know, Melbourne is the place to be. Um, you, you've got to spend a bit of time in Melbourne. Um, worked for one uh, state government agency, independent government agency, and have now moved to a different independent state government agency. And, you know, professionally, it's been a, a huge um, positive for me. I, I enjoy it very, very much. Um, very challenging, very, very busy, but uh, very rewarding. Absolutely. Well, we're all very happy that you're here and very happy that you made the change. <laughs> so lucky us. Um, Thinking about back to, let's say, earlier on in your career, I mean, I'm, I'm quite interested in the decisions that anybody makes within their career as to, like, how to make those changes and, and when they sort of come through. But even in terms of, like, challenges that you face earlier on in your career, if you can think back and sort of think to some sort of challenges that you had, like maybe it's, you know, as a, a woman potentially in a um, male-dominated field, how you sort of went around those issues and, and what you learnt from them. A couple of incidents come to mind, um, one of them at, at Newcastle Council. Uh, there, was a, there was an incident, it was a major issue for the council at the time, and, and anybody who isn't from Newcastle won't understand this, but if there are any listeners from Newcastle, you'll know this story. There was a huge rock fell off a cliff. Oh, my goodness. Huge rock onto this little coastal road. This is in the middle of the city. And it was a two-ton sandstone boulder. So it was, um, it was a symbol of the deterioration, literally a symbol uh, of the deterioration of the cliff face. Now, the decision was made at the time by the council. This was very early on when I hadn't been at the council that long, maybe a year or so, and I was still considered very much, I was the comms manager, but I was still considered quite junior. I was still a young woman. And the decision was made by, by senior people to leave the rock where it was, even though it blocked off a very popular little roadway that was snaking around. Um, not, it wasn't a major thoroughfare or anything, but it was a little coastal road along the edge of the, of the beach um, and it was very popular and it, the road had to be blocked off for two years. Oh, that's significant. So, of course, the cars couldn't drive down there. People couldn't walk down there. They had to walk um, on the – it was blocked off. So, long story short, it became a symbol of the uselessness of the council. And, you know, at the time, I went along with it and I didn't go, guys, I think this is a really bad idea. And I say guys deliberately because it was mostly guys making the decisions, but it wasn't and it wasn't a male thing, a gender thing. Um, but I didn't speak up even when it became a real media issue. So that was obviously my remit. I didn't have a voice. Or if I did have a voice, I didn't use it um, because I, you know, I didn't feel like I had enough power. And I actually have a piece of that rock that sits on a piece of hewn pine on my desk at home. And that's there to remind me that when I think something is a bloody stupid idea, don't sit quietly in the corner. And I've found myself many times, and now that I'm 
nearing a big milestone birthday with a zero in it, <laughs> I find myself even more and more these days going, you know what, what's the worst they can do? But if you don't speak up, you're going to feel like a fool if it all goes to heck. Um, my dad on his wall in his shed at home in Lithgow has a sign that says there's no such thing as a dumb question. Um, it's a question if you don't ask. It's only dumb if you don't ask the question. Um, so that's that's the one lesson is speak up. If you think something, and you don't have to do it in a challenging way, you don't have to be rude about it, but you have to say, guys, I think we need to consider this is going to be seen as a failure of governance. It's going to be used as a symbol of the, you know, uselessness of the council, and it was. It was on the front page. It was graffitied by people because it was there for long enough and it was a real drama. So that's that's that example is speak up. Don't ever – and I actually, I so admire um, – there was one young guy, I won't, I won't name him, but there was one young guy who was here at the commission a little while ago and he was very junior. He was barely out of um, uni um, and he had a habit of asking the most awkward questions no matter who was in the room. <laughs> and there were other people who were much more senior both in years and experience who would look and sort of go, oh, you just asked that of a commissioner and you know what they gave him so much respect and that's one of the things that I love about this place is how the um the the, the commissioners treat staff and that they're not hierarchical and that if you want to ask a question you can ask a question of the chairman you can ask a question of any of the commissioners you can ask a question of the CEO and they will not make you feel like an idiot and that's one of the beautiful things about this place I think and it's part of the culture is it is a questioning culture and I suppose um, they give you the power to do that as well because we do have that culture and you did mention earlier on that you sort of felt that you didn't have a you were you weren't powerful enough to use your voice before do you think that it's a, a combination of things in terms of like you were a young woman trying to find your way but also that maybe the organization didn't support you using your voice or you know now that you sort of learned your lesson you're, you're pushing through what what do you think that is I, I think you? it's both I think yeah. that I, I was in a culture where and and to some degree I have been on, on a number of other occasions since I've been in a culture where either as a woman or as a younger for a lot of the time until more recently a younger person in the room or even if you just have the wrong job title um, that you are not encouraged to to raise questions or, or that the environment's not right. So I think it is both. I think it is both your own internal um, fortitude and, and, and whether you feel like you have something to contribute, um, but also the organisation, the setting being open and, and having a really questioning culture. I think it's a valuable, valuable commodity for any learning organisation. So I suppose one of my later questions was actually going to be what advice you would give to yourself in your earlier career, but I think you may have already answered that, to, to use your voice, to speak up. Absolutely, absolutely. And to, to also be kind to yourself. Um, you know, I, I, I take great, great pride 
in the fact that I feel like I've made every possible mistake you can make and I've learned from it. So learn from your mistakes. Mistakes are, and, and I use this with my daughter all the time, is, you know, what did you learn from this? Nothing's a disaster if you learned from it. Absolutely. Um, and over your career, what is the best advice you've received from somebody, be it a mentor or a friend, a colleague, a family member? What is the best advice towards your career that you've received? I'm not even sure that it was advice. I recall a former manager saying this to me, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't his. Um, and that was, you know, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah. And I'm, I, I thrive, I'm a learning person. I like to learn and grow. I never want to rest on my laurels. As long as it's not technical, I don't mind technical. <laughs> no, none of that. No, thank no, you. Don't do that. Don't do that at all. I don't need to know how it works. Just tell me what order to press the buttons. But I do like to learn new stuff. And, um, you know, if you are actually in the room and you know more than everybody else about whatever is on the table, then okay, you're there, but don't make that same next time. Make sure that you introduce. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean bringing in someone older, wiser, more credentialed. It might actually be somebody, you know, I've done a lot of community engagement and stakeholder engagement work over my, my career. And some of the people that you learn the most from are the least qualified in terms of title or letters after their name or they're the most knowledgeable person in the room if they're telling you what you need to do or need to know to connect with them and you know, being able to know your audience. So at our organisation, we've actually established an empowering women's network, so an empowered women's network, pardon me, um, and you've been a great source of support for this network and you've been very vocal in your support for us. Why is it important to you to have a women's network within an organisation? I, I pondered on this one and, and wondered myself, and I think it's because I actually don't feel I got a lot of it. Um, and, you know, it's a source of, I don't know that I'd say distress, but it, it, it's I don't actually feel like I was supported by some older women. And even down to, to basic things, I can remember when I was at Newcastle Council, the issue of paid parental leave was on the agenda. And there were, I can, I can recall it vividly, being told by an older female staff member, well, we didn't get it, why should you? And I was absolutely incensed at that at the time, like I was at the time, um, you know, thinking about starting a family. So, yes, I was going to benefit from it. But I also, I, I felt that was a really short-sighted thing to do. I've had some fantastic female mentors in my time and some fantastic male mentors, but I also can point to quite a few um, older women and women in more senior positions who I felt haven't been supportive of me or other women and so I vowed to be that person um, so that's one and I also think it's important for people you know like myself I'm, I'm privileged to be an executive I've worked really hard to get here but I'm also that places responsibility on me I feel to be visible because you can't be what you can't see 
And I feel particularly, you know, with, with younger women um, in the organisation, they need to know that there are women who are quite capable of holding their own and, in fact, doing very well in the senior ranks. Yes, absolutely. Well, that sort of dra- brings me to the next part of my question. Thank you so much for that. Um, in terms of visibility and, and showing that there are women within senior roles and even just within your organisation um, doing the things that you might want to be doing in the future, I think that is so important. There are a couple of networks actually that are trying to increase the visibility of women within uh, the Australian media. So particularly um, Women in Economics Network, they have a register of economists, um, so a list of women um, with expertise in certain fields of economics um, for media and public speaking arrangements. So they've actually made it easier for some people to contact women and also for women to make themselves available to be seen, to be present um, and to comment on things that are important in public life. There's also another register, so the Victorian Women's Trust, they have a directory of female identifying or non-binary people of diverse capacities and expertise that are available for speaking, mentoring and leadership events. So I suppose we've already said, you know, how important it is to have a voice. Um, And what other ways can either women or organisations reach out and support women who want to, to have their voice heard? I love social media, absolutely love social media. I spend a lot of time on social media and I think, and I, and I do go out of my way to support um, women in my network and to comment and share and to um, amplify their voices um, and that's a deliberate choice. It is a deliberate choice. Yeah. It is absolutely a deliberate choice. It's, but it's also authentic. Yeah. Um, I think that I present and I certainly aim to be authentic. So I'm not going to share comment like just for the sake yes. of doing that. Yep. But I will make sure I do it when and, – and, and the fact is that, you know, a lot of women in my network are, are similar – um, ha- have similar interests and goals um, as I do. Uh, you know, there's there's a couple of, of women in particular in this organisation um, and, and who we work with on, say, the family violence work in water that is just so important, so important. So, you know, I, I make a point of, of sharing and amplifying their voice, um, but I'm doing it from a genuine place as well. And I think that anybody could go back and you know, interrogate my news feed <laughs> and they can see the things that I'm interested in. You know, I am a social justice warrior. I am into, um, I'm probably more into social justice, the environment. I'm not, and I'm not um, certainly anti-environment, but, you know, you will see there is a thread of, of um, authenticity to, to what I do. Certainly. Oh, I absolutely, <laughs> I would agree with that. Definitely an authentic and kind person. Um, I just want to be very conscious of your time and I'm very grateful to have you here. So just one final question. Um, I'd like to ask everybody what their idea of success is and whether or not you think that you are successful. Uh, I have two measures of success. Uh, And thank you for this question because just thinking about it, you know, it, it made me happy and that is part one, being happy and having fun. And two is making a difference. Um, I, each time I have changed jobs willingly, um, not, not so much the unwilling ones, but <laughs> the willing, willing changes has been because I wanted more. I wanted to do more. I want to make a difference. I, 
you know, it's to me having a successful life is having a positive impact on others. And to do that, the way I do it is trying to make a difference. And, you know, whether it's, you know, just making someone's day by being kind and, you know, saying, that's a great shirt you're wearing, Helena. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Or or, or commenting on someone's haircut or whether it's something, you know, bigger than that. You know, I like to make people's day. I like to make people smile. Uh, and and, And that makes me have fun and smile as well. So having fun and um, having an impact, that's that's success for me. And do you think you're successful? I I think I am. I think you are too. (laughs) In terms of those measures and others, yes, I definitely think that you're successful. I I think I'm successful. I'm I'm happy. I I get very stressed and tired and, um, you know, there are days when I wonder, but on the whole, I get a lot out of my life. Thank you so much, Michelle. Really appreciate having this discussion with you. Thank you for the honour of including me. I'm so I, the work that you, you're doing with this, with this podcast and with the Empowered Women's Network, you make me proud. Oh, my God. Thank you, Michelle. You're welcome. <laughs>